Something that I've been thinking about is just this whole thing of, of overcoming and the necessity of overcoming, uh, the necessity of, of persevering in our relationship with the Lord, because uh, sadly, tragically, we see many today who are, are not doing that. Instead of overcoming as believers, they are being overcome by uh, the things of uh, the world and the flesh and so forth. So we, we want to consider uh, that together today. And so to each of these churches, Jesus speaks a word to those who overcome, implying that every believer in every age is going to face opposition in their commitment to follow him. That opposition is going to push against us right to the very end. That's the reality of the Christian life. As I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, you could describe the Christian life as a series of battles against forces that are seeking to thwart the establishing of God's kingdom over and through our lives. That's what it is. I, I, I hate to break the news to you that that's what it is, but it really is. It's a series of battles. There's just one battle after another. There's one storm after another. There's one attempt after another by these forces to overthrow our faith. And hence the necessity of knowing what it means to overcome and overcoming. So the question is, what specifically are the things to be overcome? And secondly, how do we overcome them? So as we look at these letters here, these seven letters to the churches, we see in these letters to the churches, we see the, the various things that Christians throughout all ages and from generation to generation, these are the things that, that we have to deal with. These are the things that we have to overcome. And there's a number of things that we find here in these churches. And let me just give you examples. There are uh, issues of a cooling, hard, or indifferent heart toward the Lord as seen in Ephesus, Sardis, and Laodicea. In those three churches, those were uh, the problems. Ephesus, the heart had grown cold toward Jesus. Sardis, the heart had become uh, hard and stony. And in uh, Laodicea, the, the church that was neither hot nor cold, remember, but it was lukewarm. Well, obviously, this is a, a heart of indifference toward the Lord. So you're going to have those kinds of issues. You're going to have issues of idolatry, sexual immorality, covetousness. Uh, these also are seen in these letters, seen in the letter to the church in Pergamos, Thyatira, Laodicea. You find that these were the issues there. But then there are also issues of satanically inspired opposition and persecution, as in the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamos, and the church of Philadelphia. So to, to kind of summarize it, the, 
the opposition is coming to us from the world and from the devil and from the flesh. And, and those are always the, the, the combination of things that work together to seek to overthrow our faith. And so from the world, we have those temptations, say, for example, to uh, idolatry and to greed and to covetousness and things like that. And uh, people are, are led astray by those things. Jesus said, you remember maybe in the parable that he told, commonly called the parable of the sower, Jesus spoke of those who heard the word and um, the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, they, they choke the word. So it never really brings forth the fruit that was intended. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. And so we see it in these churches. We see the idolatry in both uh, the church in uh, Pergamos as well as the church at Thyatira. The, the emphasis there is on the idolatry. Now, idolatry, just so we're clear about this, isn't merely the bowing down to a carved image of some sort, although that is idolatry, and although that does still happen in many places in the world today. There, uh, idolatry is alive and well in the Western world. Idolatry is alive and well in the, the USA. And because idolatry is really something other than God being on the throne of our hearts. So as Christians, we can be guilty of idolatry. We can be tempted toward idolatry as our, the affection of our hearts moves away from the Lord and onto something or someone else. It can be things, it can be possessions, or it can be a person, it can be ideas. Any number of things can possibly become an idol in our lives. And so we're battling against the world. We're battling against uh, materialism covetousness, greed, and these kinds of things that, that threaten to overtake us and overcome us. But these are the things that we need to overcome. And then, of course, there's the battle with the devil. In these letters to the churches, the devil is mentioned six times. Uh, five times he's referred to as Satan, and one time he's actually referred to as the devil. Of course, we're talking about the same person. And five times... Um, or, or four times he's referred to in the, the sense of uh, inspiring persecution against believers. So he's responsible for afflicting believers and for stirring up persecution. Um, the, the other connections are one, he's, he's connected with idolatry. His throne is in a certain place. And there's persecution there as well. But then in the letter to the church in Thyatira, he's connected with the, the, the deep, dark idolatry and immorality, sexual immorality that's going on in the church. So the devil kind of has his hand in a lot of different things, uh, but he is the one behind persecution. He's the one that inspires people uh, with hatred toward the followers of Jesus and tries to, to get them to uh, persecute. 
And so the world, the devil, but then I think really in some ways the worst of all is the flesh because the world and the devil are outside of us. The flesh, well, that's us. Sometimes we are the biggest problem. We're our own worst enemy. And with the flesh, you have the issues of the heart. You have the, the cooling of the heart, the, 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 the lack of passion toward Jesus. You have the hardness of the heart that can develop, or you have the in, indifference. But of course, sexual immorality and uh, those types of things that are pleasing to the flesh, uh, those are all part of this, this battle that we have. So this is the point. The point is that we are in a battle. That Jesus calls us to overcome in. And we've got to see life for what it is. We've got to see the Christian life for what it is. It is a series of battles. And these things, the things that the world throws at us, the thing the devil throws at us, and, and the things that the flesh uh, has those inclinations toward, these are the things that we are to fight against. So here's the next important question. How do we overcome? We're going to see that Jesus gives all these promises to the overcomers, but how, how do we overcome? We see the need to overcome and what it is that we have to overcome, but how do we do it? Well, John tells us, the one who wrote Revelation or had it at least uh, dictated to him, um, John, in his first epistle, he tells us the way to victory. He tells us how to overcome. He said in chapter five, verses four and five, he said, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. It's our faith that's gonna overcome the world. Who are they that overcome the world, he asked? Those who believe that Jesus is the son of God. So how do we overcome? We overcome by continued faith in Christ. And you see what the devil wants to do and what he's, he's trying to use the world to do and what he even um, uh, aligns himself with our flesh to do is to move us away from our faith in Christ. That's his ultimate objective, to move us away from our faith in Christ. So we have to continue to trust Jesus. We have to continue to love Jesus. We have to continue in our obedience to him. We have to continue to uh, confess him as our Lord. We have to continue to have confidence in him. We have to continue to repent toward him when we do sin, when our hearts do grow cold or when we do uh, drift off into idolatry, or when we do find ourselves uh, maybe caught up in sexual immorality or whatever, we, we have to repent. We have to come back to him. We need to keep trusting him. We, we need to, these, these are words that you need to get lodged into your mind. Perseverance, endurance, fighting. These are words that all describe what we do as Christians. We are to persevere. 
We need to keep on going. We need to have endurance. Because, you know, the enemy uh, wants to wear us down. That's what he wants to do. And, and of course, you know, if you're doing anything, uh, any kind of uh, sport, any kind of competitive thing, you know that there, there's a point where you get weary, you get tired, you get exhausted, you need rest, you need refreshment, you need revitalization. And so with us, since we are in a battle, a battle that is lasting our entire lives, uh, we need refreshment, we, we need revitalization, and we get that through our faith in Christ. Now, thank God that even though we are in this battle, Thank God it's not uh, continuous in the sense that there's, there's never a reprieve, that there's never any let up. I mean, if that were the case, we would probably all be wiped out. But the good thing is that the Lord knows what we're, what we're able to handle. And he promised that he wouldn't allow us to be tested beyond uh, our ability to handle it. And of course, he would give us uh, the grace to do that. But the fact of the matter is, we need perseverance, we need endurance, we, we, we have to fight because someone, something is trying to take our crown from us, trying to take our reward from us. And Jesus says to the church here, he says, hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. That no one take your crown. Be aware of that objective that's, that's aimed at every one of us from those three enemies that we mentioned. You know, I was talking to a friend this morning. I haven't seen her in many years, and she came here to church this morning, and she told me that she, uh, she's had a rough time. Her marriage is, you know, difficulties there and, and so forth. But, you know, she said she kind of just drifted away from the Lord. She became angry because God wasn't doing for her and her family and her marriage what she had expected him to do. And it, things weren't getting better. And her husband was becoming more difficult and unfaithful and all of those things. But you know, she's back. And that's, that's the thing we have to know. Yeah, the enemy might knock you out of your lane for a, a, a little bit. You might get weary and, and collapse. Maybe you've done that. You know, if you're running a long distance race, uh, you know what happens? The further you go, the more tired you get. And there, there are times when you feel like, oh, I just, I can't go any further. But Jesus will give us the grace. He will give us the strength if we look to him. And so we've got to hold fast that no one take our crown. Now, here, and the thing I want to focus on primarily are these promises that Jesus made to those who overcome. And to every one of these churches, and more specifically to the individuals in the churches, Jesus gives these promises. And they are promises to the overcomer. Now, we need to know this. One of the major themes of scripture is that for God's people, that's us who believe in Jesus, the best is yet to come. That's what we have to know. The best is yet to come, which really means that we should not be expecting to have our best life now. If you're expecting to have your best life now, you're going to be 
disappointed because this is not the time. This is not our best life now. You know, a soldier's best life is when the war is over and he gets to come back to his family, right? His best life isn't when he's there on the battlefield dodging bullets and bombs and the enemy and all, all of that. Oh, that's, that's what he's, that's what he's uh, committed to doing. And that's great, but he, he doesn't envision that as, as an endless situation. He's longing for that to be over. And so likewise with us, we have to realize that, that our best life is not now. Our best life is in the future. And my, my point is this, and this is where I think we sometimes fail and this is why we sometimes get discouraged and sometimes why we're tempted to drop out is because we make the mistake of thinking that no, everything now is supposed to be great. Now, like I said, thank God that we do have some wonderful times. I mean, being a Christian is a wonderful thing. You have peace, you have contentment, you have joy, you know that you're loved, you know that you're forgiven, you have confidence about the future. You have all of those things, but you have all of those things in the midst of a raging war. That's the, that's the truth about it. And just like every single generation of believers from the beginning of time till this very day, we're all still waiting for the culmination of the promises of God. We're all still waiting for this thing to be finalized and to be wrapped up and for everything that God has promised. We're waiting for that to come to fruition. It hasn't happened yet. So if we're thinking that it all should be perfect right now, and because it's not, we are then drifting into these other things, it's because our thinking in the first place is wrong. You see, Jesus said, it is only if we lose our lives now for his sake and the sake of the kingdom that we will preserve them for eternity. It is there in his presence that we will experience fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. That's not gonna happen here and now. So we, we've just got to face that. We've got to just lay hold of the reality that, look, life is a series of battles. It's a series of spiritual battles with God in his mercy giving us those times of rest and reprieve that, that he knows that we need. But nevertheless, we go from one battle to another. That is what I have discovered in my life as a Christian. Now, you know, when you've been through a lot of battles, you tend to think that, you know, I've been through enough battles. I'm not really <laughs> thinking that I should have to go through any more. But you know what you find? It's, it's inevitable. You can't stop it. it they, just, they keep coming. They keep coming. And if you think of it as a battle or you think of it as a storm, uh, you know, you go through storm after storm. And, and of course, thank God, you go through a storm and then the sea's calm and there you are and you're just, oh, you're, oh it's great. Everything's calmed down. But oh man, you look on the horizon, you see those clouds out there. You know that, uh-oh, there's another storm coming. There is another storm coming. This is just, this is it. This is the way, this is the way life is. And especially for us as believers, because 
We're in the thick of this conflict. And so we have got to remember this. You see, the promise to those who overcome pertain, those promises pertain to the joy and pleasure that await those who have loved and followed Jesus in the time of his humiliation and rejection. This is the time of the rejection of Jesus. That's what we're living in. And because of that, Jesus said, if they uh, hear my words, they're going to hear yours. If they love me, they're going to love you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. That's the way it is. And listen, we're living in a world that is becoming outwardly and, and more obviously hostile toward Jesus Christ. We, we lived in a culture that for a long time was just simply indifferent to Christ and his gospel. Hey, yeah, that Jesus, we hear about Jesus, but you know, yeah, that's over there. It doesn't bother me. I, they don't bother me. I don't bother them. They're just sort of an indifference. But you, you know that that is changing. You know that the indifference is giving way to an open hostility. And we're seeing more and more now today, people are saying, like, like they said back right there when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate and he was about to be condemned, and those people under the inspiration of the high priest were shouting, we will not have this man to rule over us. And that's what people are saying today. The reason people hate Jesus is because he represents the rule of God over their lives. And, and we live in a time when everybody thinks that they are absolutely autonomous, that they have no accountability to anybody, that they are the final authority on what they can do or think or how they live. That's the, the world that we're living in now. So anybody who dares to tell them that the way they're living or what they're thinking or doing is wrong, then that person becomes the enemy. And Jesus, that's what he's telling people all the time. But, but he, he actually said it himself. Even in his day, he said, the world can't hate you. He was speaking to his brothers. He said, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. That's the problem. So we're living in the time when Christ is rejected and we are his followers and we are experiencing that same rejection. But listen, Jesus said this to his disciples and it's applicable to us because we're his disciples as well. It's not the specifics aren't exactly the same, but the principle is the same. Jesus said this to them. He said, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is saying essentially that same thing to us today. You are the ones who are continuing with me in my trials, my time of rejection. We are the ones who are following him still. And he says, you know, there's a reward. There's a payoff that's coming. And see, this is my point. We have to look forward to the payoff that's coming. It's coming. We might not get it here and now. As a matter of fact, we might get what seems to be uh, an unfair treatment. What seems to be something that's 
inconsistent with being a Christian. Wait, I'm a Christian. I thought my life was going to be blessed. I thought everything was going to be great. Well, it will be, but maybe not yet. And that's what we have to keep in mind. Now, here, as I said, as you look at each one of these churches, there is the promise to the overcomer. And we want to look at these promises to the overcomer. And let me just say up front, it's a little bit difficult to pinpoint the exact meaning of some of these promises. It's, it's a little challenging, but we're going to try our best to at least get close. But regardless of that, it's safe to say, even if we can't pinpoint exactly what this is referring to, it's safe to say this, that they are describing an experience of joy unspeakable that goes on forever and ever. So even if we can't figure out the exact uh, finer detail of what the promise uh, includes, this is what we know. What we know is Jesus is saying, he who overcomes this, this thing that is just really so far beyond your, your greatest expectation, that is going to be your reality forever. That's really what he's saying in each of these promises. But let's look at the, the seven. He gives seven because there's seven churches. And so to the Ephesians, he, this is the promise. To those, to those who overcome in Ephesus, he said that they are going to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the garden of God. To those who overcome in Smyrna, he says they're not going to be hurt by the second death. To those who overcome in Pergamos, he said they're going to be given the hidden manna, the white stone, and a new name. Uh, to those who overcome in Thyatira, they're going to be given authority over the nations and the morning star. For those who overcome in Sardis, they're going to be clothed with white garments. Their name will not be blotted out of the book of life, but their name will be confessed before God. And then to Philadelphia, those who overcome are going to be made a pillar in the house of God, and God's name will be written on their forehead. And then finally, the passage that we started with, those who overcome are going to sit on Christ's throne with him. So you see, these are the promises. And let me reiterate this. Let me say this one more time. All of God's servants from the very beginning of time have lived waiting for those things to come. And they have not yet come fully. They came partially when Jesus came. And of course, the long-awaited uh, fulfillment of the promises of the Messiah, they, they were realized partially when Jesus came. But of course, the promise of the Messiah was not only that he would suffer and die for sin and destroy sin and death and rise from the dead, but the promise was that he would set up God's eternal kingdom. That part of it, of course, is what we're waiting uh, to have happen. And so in order to be there in that place, we have to overcome. We have to continue to believe in Jesus. But let's, let me just break down uh, the promises. So First of all, they're going to eat of the tree of life. Eating of the tree of life. You know, the book of Revelation is amazing in as much as all scripture is, is brought together in the book of Revelation. It's the book of um, the, 
the consummation of everything. Everything culminates in the book of Revelation. So the, the tree of life, you find it back in the very beginning. There in the Garden of Eden is the tree of life. And then it reappears again in the new heaven and the new earth that are spoken of here in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, we're told about the tree of life, that it's going to be there in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is part of the new heaven and the new earth. And the leaves of the tree are going to be for the health of the nations. And so what the Lord is saying really, ultimately, is for those who overcome, you're going to be in the new heaven and the new earth. You're going to be in the new Jerusalem. You're going to be there. You're going to experience that perfect life that I intended from the very beginning that man forfeited through sin, but Jesus redeemed it. And so we are going to experience it. Those who overcome are going to experience that. And then he said that those who overcome would not be hurt by the second death. The second death is the death you don't want to experience. The first death is, for the most part, inevitable. Unless, of course, you happen to be a person who participates in the rapture. But the first death isn't the problem. The second death is the problem because the second death is eternal death. And Jesus says to the, the church in Smyrna, he says, Satan is going to cast some of you into prison and you're going to be there 10 days. He said, but be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And he addressed them, maybe you remember, as the one who was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the, the power over death and the grave. So the promise for the overcomer is that there is no second death that will harm you. The overcomer has no fear of hell. The overcomer has no worries that perhaps they are one day going to end up in the lake of fire. No, it's never going to happen. And as we continue to trust in Christ, we have that absolute confidence that the second death will not hurt us. But then he speaks of being given the hidden manna, the white stone, the new name. That's going to be given to the overcomer. What, is, what does this mean? This is where it gets a little bit challenging. But the hidden manna, well, the, the manna, we know manna first appears in the Old Testament. It's the, the bread from heaven that God gave to the ancient Israelites as they were wandering in the wilderness. He sustained them through this bread from heaven. It was also called the food of angels. But then Jesus comes and he says that he is the bread of life. And he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, they're going to have life in them. He calls us to feed on him. And I think the idea here is that for those who overcome, they will be completely and eternally satisfied. There will never be dissatisfaction. There will never be discontentment. There will never be a sense that I'm, I'm hungry and I can't be filled because Jesus is the one who fulfills us. Jesus is the one who satisfies us. He gives us that hidden manna, but he also gives us a white stone. 
And this is where there's all kinds of diversity of opinion among commentators on uh, what the white stone is referring to. Some say that it was a, a stone of acquittal. And when a person was being tried, uh, they would, if, if you, uh, you, the way you cast your ballot for whether they were uh, innocent or guilty was you either did so with a black stone or a white stone. Obviously, the white stone is the stone of acquittal. Some say that's what it's referring to. Others say that the white stone was actually uh, used as sort of a, a ticket into uh, places of prestige. So it was your pass through which you could access uh, places of importance. And so it could be either, but I think in a sense that uh, I, I like the access thing because that's what Jesus has given to us. We, we have access into all of the grace of God. We have access into his eternal kingdom through that white stone. And then I will give them a new name. And the idea here is that it's a, it's a personal name that's known by you and Christ. It's like a pet name. So I gave my, all of my kids, I gave them pet names. And some of them, it stuck with them their whole lives and they are still mad at me for that. You know, my oldest son, his name is Char. His name all of his life was Charlo. His name is actually Brian. Charles. People used to say, so Charlo, like where, where did you get a name like that? It sounds, sounds kind of Spanish. <laughs> that name was so attached to him when he was a kid. I remember he was playing on a basketball team and the coach, I signed him up as Brian. So he went out to practice. He doesn't know who Brian is. And the coach is like, Brian, come here. Hey, Brian, don't do this. Brian, don't do that. And he's like, he, does, he has no idea <laughs> that he's the one that's being spoken to. It's like, my name's not Brian. My name is Charlo. Well, you know, he since changed his name to Char. He shortened it. But actually what happened is his sister, who's two years older than him, when he was a brand new baby, we brought him home. And she said, look at baby Charlo. He's so cute. And that was it. It stuck the rest of his life. <laughs> so, you know, he pastors a church up above San Francisco and Sometimes we'll go up and see him and occasionally I'll, I'll preach there and I will inevitably call him Charlo and people are looking like, who's Charlo? And then he'll have to explain, oh yeah, that's the dumb name that my parents stuck me with. But it's a, you know, it's a name of affection. So Jesus has got a name for you. He's got a name for me. One of those names like you, maybe as husband and wife, you know, you have those little pet names that you have for each other or your kids. I gave my girls names too, but I would, they would just get so mad if I even mentioned that here. They're, they're, they're much more sensitive. And my youngest son, he just was named by his nephew. Uh, his name is Brayden, and he just became B. B, my 
my grandson just one day looked at him and said, hey, B, what's going on? And so that, he's had that name. But you, you get what I'm talking about. We're talking, this, like a, there's an intimacy to it. And Jesus is gonna give that to those who overcome. But then he goes on, he's gonna give authority over the nations and the morning star to those who overcome. The ruling and the reigning with Christ, that's what is in the future of those who believe in Jesus. And the morning star, again, there's difference of opinion on what the morning star is referring to. But Jesus himself is called the morning star. So it could be that what he's talking about here is that he will be our everything to us and that we will find in him that just complete fulfillment of our very purpose for existing. It's going to be good, whatever it is. But then he spoke about those overcomers being clothed in white garments. And of course, that's obviously referring to the, the righteousness, that we're given a righteousness that's a perfect righteousness, or that our names would not be blotted out of the book of life, that that never under any circumstance could happen. That's the, the idea behind the language there. But rather than that, we're going to be confessed before God. As Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'm going to confess you before my Father in heaven and the angels. And so for the overcomer, that's the case. But then that they would be a, made a pillar in the house of God, that we would be given that permanent place, that place of absolute uh, security forever. Now think about all of these things that we're talking about. These are all the things that human beings long for. We long for security. We long for fulfillment. We long to be loved. That's what, that's, our whole lives are all about that in one shape or form. And yet the reality is most of the time we never find it, do we? Most people never find that. And it gets all twisted and distorted and messed up and, you know, all kinds of horrible things happen. But, but man was created to be loved, to be secure, to be fulfilled. And that's everything that Jesus is promising here, that all of these things are going to be given us, that God's name is going to be written on our forehead, that we are going to be God's people forever. We are his possession. We belong to him. His seal is upon us. And lastly, that we will sit upon the throne. As Jesus said to those 12 who followed him in his trial, you will sit upon 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. The apostles are going to do that. We are going to sit upon thrones as well and have other spheres of judgment. The saints are going to judge the world according to the apostle Paul. So you see, these are all the promises that are given. And I think really at the end, what is being communicated in these promises is really this, that eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of a man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. God has an amazing thing that he has prepared for us, but it's not yet, but it's coming and we must persevere. We must endure. We must keep going. Don't give up. Don't stop short. Don't drop out. Don't fall back. 
And if you've done any of those things, get up. Ask Jesus to pick you up and he will do it because the key to everything is overcoming and we overcome through our faith. We keep trusting Jesus. So no matter where you've been or how you failed or whatever, you just come back and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you again. Help me to trust you. And like I said, it's, it's, to keep on believing and to keep on being confident and to keep on repenting. Keep on repenting. As often as we sin, as often as we fail, as often as we, we do what we shouldn't do, we come back and we confess it. We repent and we ask him for his grace and he gives it to us and he helps us to overcome. And so, remember, life is a series of battles from one, (laughs) from the beginning to the end. Remember that the best is yet to come. But also remember that the overcomer is the one who ultimately inherits all things. And you know, at the end of the book of Revelation, that's what it says. It says, he who overcomes will inherit all things and I will be his or her God and they shall be my people. That's the future. That's where we're headed. We're not there yet. We're still on the battlefield. We're still in the race. We're still in the storm. But don't worry, there's an everlasting sea of calm that we'll one day sail into. And one day the race will be over and one day the battle will be over and we'll enter into a rest and a blessing that is beyond the ability to describe in human language. When the Apostle Paul had a brief moment of being caught up into heaven, he said, I can't really tell you about it because no words could ever do justice to what I saw and experienced there. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard. It hasn't entered the heart. But God has given us a taste by his spirit. So the wonderful thing is that it's not all fighting and running and rowing and almost sinking. It's not all that. There are those moments of reprieve. There is that taste of what eye has not seen and ear has not heard, there, there are those tastes that God gives to us through his spirit. Because the Christian life, although it is hard and although it is a fight, is the best life. But it's leading ultimately to the better life than the best because it's the eternal one in the presence of God. 
where all of this is no longer and all of that is forever. So Lord, we thank you and we pray. We thank you that you've saved us, called us to be your people. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us strength and power and grace and perseverance and all the things that we need to be in the end overcomers. And so, Lord, would you help us today? And Lord, I just pray for anyone today who maybe this message is just speaking to them where they're at as it's spoken to others. Lord, meet them right where they're at. Give them all that they need to keep going. Lord, to overcome. And we know that that happens through our faith in Jesus. Strengthen our faith. Strengthen their faith. We pray in your name. Amen.